It's good to see everyone this morning. Last week we started talking about family and that we as a church are a family, or as Alicia would say, we a family. And we are a family, and that began to be tested this week by a number of, of baseball playoffs games. And apparently we have a variety of factions within the church that I am praying will not become divisions within the church. <laughs> but so far, they're still friendships. That's good. That's a good thing. I was thinking this week about our, our text this morning because we go on to talk about what it means to be family. And Paul begins to get into some specifics of, okay, how does family look in a church? What happens with different needs in a church? And this week, we, we've been seeing in the news all week, the news of the government shutdown, right? Or at least a 17% shutdown, or whatever it actually is. And I know some of you that are going to national parks soon are a little concerned that you might not be able to go. Those might be shut down. But one of the talks as we've gone through this is what will happen to all of the recipients of aid from the government, welfare and, and child support and, and uh, services and different things. And it was a reminder to me of how much we rely on government to, to fulfill needs. And, and thinking through, w- without getting political about whether that's good or bad, biblically, we see a call for the church to step up and be part of meeting those needs. And so in, a, in, a, in an era where we're very concerned that the government isn't meeting needs, it's a reminder to us that we as a church are called to come together and be a family. We are called to come together and meet needs. And so today our, our topic turns to the, the subject of widows. And those that have needs, that have lost husbands, that have lost sons, that have lost support systems in, in, in their environment as well as in our environment. And we know that there was always issues with, with how do you meet needs in the church. And especially concerns about widows because that's near and dear the heart of God. In Acts 6, I know a, a passage you'll be covering in Sunday school very soon. Um, in Acts 6, we see that there was conflict because the, Hellenist, the, the widows from the Hellenistic community and the Jewish community, some were getting food and some weren't. And, and so this issue of how do we meet the needs of those that have needs in our church was a forefront issue in, in the church. And so today, as we look through our text, we're going to see Paul give us instructions, just some really practical instructions. Who do you help? Who do you not help? What are the responsibilities of both sides of the arrangement? But through it all, I pray that it's a reminder to us that we are a family. And we have family responsibilities that we're not to leave that door without considering. And that includes some of the the people in our own congregation that have gone through so much. That have gone through loss that is heartbreaking. That are wondering, how do I go on not only emotionally, but how do I pay bills? How do I take care of details now that family is gone? So we come to this text with a seriousness, realizing that this is an important issue. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. And and Paul in his letter to Timothy has been moving through and, and he's, he's leading up to dealing with a couple of issues that he's touched on a couple times. One of those had to do with some false teaching in the church, possibly from a couple of the elders. Another issue that keeps coming up is, 
it looks like some of the young women and some of the young widows were stirring up some trouble in the church. And there was some immorality happening, possibly with the false teachers. We'll see that in 2 Timothy. Um, and there was definitely some, some division and some damage happening to the church because of what was happening with, with some of the young widows. And so Paul here gets down to nitty-gritty. He goes, let's deal with it. Here's some things that I need to teach you. And, and, and he does it in a wonderful way of reminding us of our responsibilities. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 3. And we'll look at, at two different paragraphs you see in your text, 3 through 8 and then 9 through 16. And those will be our two major points. And the first paragraph, 3 through 9 here, reminds us provide real family care for widows in real need. Provide real family care, and the wording there is important because it's not just throwing a dollar here or a dollar there, but real family care, bringing them in for the widows who are in real need. Let's start at verse 3. Honor widows who are truly widows. Honor widows who are truly widows. And in one sentence, he brings us, to, he brings home the point of how we're to be concerned and how we're to treat the widows in our church family. And so letter A there is have a deep care for our widows. Have a deep care, a deep love, a deep concern for our widows. The first word in verse 3 is honor. And honor means to set a price on, to, to value highly, to support, to give proper recognition to, some of your translations say. And it always had this connotation not only of esteeming highly, which we tend to think of in our use of honor, but for them it had the connotation as well of materially supporting them. So if you, if you set a price on or set a high value on, you would esteem them and you would support them. And that was just part of this word. We're going to see that over and over. Do you remember back in Matthew 15 where, where Jesus is confronting the Pharisees about Corbin and their, their use of money? And the Pharisees were in the process of teaching others to honor their father and mother. And honor means to value highly, to support, and to esteem. In teaching others to do that, the Pharisees were saying, you know what, but, but we don't have to do the financial side of it. We'll esteem our mom and dad, but we don't have to do the financial side because my money is all devoted to God. And you could just see them doing it that way, right? Being all pious and making a show of it. And, and so that my money is all devoted to God, and so I have nothing left to support my parents. Mom, Dad, you're on your own. A direct violation of the command to honor your father and mother. And so Jesus in Matthew 15, 4 says, For God commanded, honor your father and mother. So you see how he's using the word honor here. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. And he goes on to just rake the Pharisees across the coals. Because they aren't honoring their father and mother. And, and I share this to help us understand the word honor because it meant something more to them than it does to us. It meant this idea of supporting physically, emotionally, and financially. And so when Paul starts by saying, honor widows who are truly widows, their minds immediately go to, we need to support them. We need to take care of them in every way. And so we start by saying, have a deep care for our widows. 
See, widows in their culture really had some struggles. If you were to, to lose your husband as a, as a wife, you were not the next heir to his estate. Your children, your sons in particular, were the heir to his estate. If you were to be taken care of, it was because some money was left to you so you could take care of your sons. Do you get, get how that worked? And you've heard of a dowry? The dowry was given to a, a wife by her parents at marriage, and that was saved, and that became her welfare. That became her, her ability to support herself if something happened to her husband. And in fact, if the husband passed away, the dowry then went to her and would transfer with her wherever she went. But what would happen to a widow who lost a husband, who lost sons maybe, had no one to take care of her and didn't come from a wealthy family where she had a wealthy dowry? She was in trouble. She was in trouble. It was hard sometimes, especially if you were older, to get a job, to work. Younger ones could work and support themselves, but older ones couldn't. And so we had a situation where there was real needs and real problems. And so God designed it and God instructs the church to fill that gap. He didn't just leave widows abandoned. He said, no, I have a plan for them. The plan just isn't through an inheritance. The plan is through a spiritual inheritance and a spiritual family. This is family at its best, and real family. That, that helps us understand the story of Naomi and Ruth, doesn't it? Who did Naomi lose? Her husband and her sons. That's why she had to leave where she was. She had nothing left. And so she was trying to go a place where there was family that could take care of her. And it ended up that they, they went and Ruth met Boaz and love and all that stuff. Um, <laughs> Good things. And we see the light of Christ continuing. But God's will and God's word is that church takes care of those that are in need. We see God's heart for widows throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, it comes up over and over. Turn to Deuteronomy 14. Let's just look at a couple verses to see God's heart for widows and to capture His heart. Deuteronomy 14, verse 29. And we see right in the instructions to the Israelites a plan for taking care of widows and orphans, by the way, those that are in need. Deuteronomy 14.29 And the Levite, because he had no portion or inheritance with you, because they didn't get their own land, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your town shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. And the instruction is, to watch out for these people and bring them in and make sure they eat, make sure they're filled. It's our responsibility. It's the community's responsibility. Flip over to Deuteronomy 24.19, just ten chapters later. Deuteronomy 24.19, and, and here we see the instructions that Boaz was following with Ruth. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And so we see God's welfare system says, consider them, leave something for them. Don't pick your field clean. Leave something for those that are in need that can come and take part of that. The verse that Joshua read this morning, Psalm 68.5, that God is the father to the fatherless and protector of widows is God and His holy habitation. 
In James 1.27, we see in the New Testament again, if we're to practice godliness, if we're to practice our faith, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's just a, a few of the verses where we start to see God's heart for those in need. And if we're to as a church, be a family, we need to have that same heart. And we need to take that instruction right at verse 3 that says, honor, and take that seriously. Honor widows who are truly widows. Out of that, though, we get the second point. And, and the dilemma for the church was there's limited resources, and how do we financially support everybody? We can't do it. And so there's some instructions that Paul gives to discern which widows qualify for material help. Which widows qualify for material help? Now let me just say up front, this doesn't mean that the other widows were ignored. That nobody ever gave them a hug. Nobody ever talked to them. This is talking about material help, support for these particular widows. And we see several qualifications. In verse 3, honor widows who are truly widows. Or widows in the fullest sense some translations might use. And, and, and Paul here is trying to help say, we need to look at needs and we need to look at who truly needs the help and make sure that we are discerning and, and, and wise in where we distribute those resources. And so he gives some qualifications in the verses that follow. The first qualification is in verse 4 and 5, a widow that has no family to care for her. And that, that makes sense if we understand the history, Right? A widow that has no family to care for her. In verse um, 4 there, you see, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, same words as in verse 3, left all alone, and then it goes on to give some other qualifications that we'll talk about in a minute. But in 4, in the beginning of 5, we see that one of the qualifications is she has to be left all alone without a family structure to support her. Because the call here is for family to step up, immediate family and physical family to step up and take care of needs first. Because there's responsibilities there. And so if, if the church just steps in and covers all the needs and family doesn't come, step up and do that, then we're actually helping family shirk their responsibilities and disobey God. And so Paul says, let's start with family. There's, there's a priority here. Family needs to step up and take care of the widows. Doesn't mean she's left all alone if they don't. That's where church family comes in. But the starting point is family. And I love verse 5 because he tells some of the, or verse 4, he tells some of the benefits of letting family step up and step um, and, and help out. The first we see in verse 4 there, if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness. They're to learn to show godliness. To put their faith into practice. It's like a lab for Christ-likeness. Isn't family like a lab for life? If we can learn how to love one another and to care for one another in family where we're living and rubbing shoulders, then that helps us learn it for the rest of life. And, and the idea of godliness is faith in practice. Going from the head to the hands. Getting it into action. And you think about it. Think about when you're in school and you learned a concept in school. 
Was it different to then go, go out to business or to go out to work and put it into practice? Were you perfect the first time? No, because you had to take the knowledge you had in your head and actually put it into practice. It's why jobs say experience required. Because experience teaches something. Now, I know the frustration when every job says experience required. How do you get experience? But in this case, the experience we get is through the home. And so Paul here is saying, let, let the family step up and learn godliness. Learn what it means to walk with God. The second benefit for a family that does that is going on in verse 4 and to make some return to their parents. And to make some return or requital to their parents. To pay back those long sleepless nights when you were a child and crying all night and your mom or your dad couldn't figure out why. To pay back all of those dirty diapers. To pay back all of the, the hours and the time and the energy that was spent helping you with homework that you didn't understand to pay back the sacrifice to give you something you so wanted at Christmas when mom and dad were going without and those aren't bad things but what Paul is saying is those are things to be repaid because when we repay those we show gratitude when we repay those we honor and so Paul's saying don't just live life for yourself remember who has helped you and make sure you help them. Oftentimes we joke with our kids and, and they're, they're, we're helping them with something and they're like, oh, okay, thanks. And we're like, oh, don't worry, you're going to be helping us with this someday. <laughs> what goes around comes around. <laughs> and we all laugh and it, it's a, a funny, but it's a truth. It's a truth because we're trying to help in, in a humorous way already teach our kids that there's a responsibility to mom and dad. There's a responsibility to grandparents. And so, Paul here is saying, remember that responsibility if you're a family. It's where it starts. The last thing that's mentioned as a benefit in four of, of a, a family taking care of a widow first is that it's pleasing in the sight of God. It obeys honor your father and mother, which we see in Exodus 20 and Ephesians 6. It pleases God as opposed to what the Pharisees were doing with their finances. And so right from the start, we see that church charity is never a substitute for personal responsibility. Church charity is never a substitute for personal responsibility. Personal responsibility comes first. And that, that is a challenge to a church as you decide who to help. To say, has personal responsibility happened? And in this case, has a family stepped up and taken care of one of their own that's in need? So, who's eligible? A widow that has no family to care for her. In verse 5, there's a second requirement, which I found very interesting. A widow is eligible who is walking with and serving God. Who is walking with and serving God. So Paul's here saying, who should the church help? She who is truly alone, left all alone in verse 5, but then read on, has set her hope in God, which refers to salvation and a confidence, a trust in God, who has set her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers day and night, who's walking with God, who's ministering to others the best that she can with prayer. I've got to tell you, sometimes some of the, the widows that we have will come to me and say, do you have any prayer requests? 
And it is always with fear and trembling that you give some of our widows prayer requests. You know why? Because they actually pray. And they actually pray with power. And that is a ministry to the church. And and it allows them to care for us. It allows them to be family. Because we have family. And so for those of you that have lost husbands, have lost loved ones, your ministry is so valuable. Your prayers are so valuable. And Paul uses that as one of the, the requirements or one of the qualifications for, for gaining help from the church. And what he's doing is he's setting up a give and take here. That yes, a, a church should help, but as a family, everyone has a responsibility to the family, including the one being helped. So Paul says, one who is walking with and serving God. And we see a prayer warrior night and day, which was the Jewish understanding of a day. But it stood for praying continually. Praying continually. So there was a standard of godliness expected if you were under the ongoing care of the church. And finally in verse 6, we see one other qualification there. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. She's not to be living for self. Not to be living for pleasure. That, self, that word for self-indulgent is the same word that we see in James 5.5 5, where the rich are being um, admonished. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. And James there isn't saying it's wrong to be rich. It's wrong to use it for self-indulgence. And that's the same word used here that a a widow that is under the support of the church is not to then use that as an opportunity for self-indulgence. Hey, someone else is supporting me. Woohoo! Life is good. I can do whatever I want. No, there's a requirement or a reciprocal ministry that happens. And so there's a standard of godliness that is required. A true godly widow is one that is trusting, praying, and not living for self. Sometime you can look at the example of Anna there in Luke 2, 36. It's mentioned in your notes. I'd, I'd look that up and read that during the week and see what God says about that widow and her ministry. Then we get to verses um, 7 and 8. And let her see, remember that our care for our widows affects our reputation and witness. Honor them. And Paul's coming back to, okay, here's some requirements But let's get back to the fact you need to honor them and you need to act on this. And he he takes two verses to elevate the responsibility. In verse 7, command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. Reproach, remember from our our description of qualifications of leaders, to be without reproach means no one had uh, an accusation against you. That you were blameless, not that you were sinless, but everything is taken care of. There's no outstanding um, accusation against you. And what he's saying is when we don't take care of our widows, there's an accusation against us. We are not blameless. To the world, we are not blameless. It affects our witness. Lots of discussion of who the they is in there. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. And some say, well, that's to the widows. And some say, well, that's to the family. I would argue with, with a number of commentators that it's to the church. Because the, the phrase command these things is used over and over in 1 Timothy always as a formula for what you teach the church. And so Paul uses the same formula here to say, this is what you teach the church. 
Teach them to honor, to love, to care for the widows. And then in so doing, you're teaching the family to step up to their responsibility as well. And verse 8 there is, is one of those just verse that steps on your toes. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And the challenge there, what Paul is saying is, even unbelievers know that they have a responsibility to family. Even unbelievers will step up and take care of a widow, that will step up and take care of their own. If we don't, as a church, do the same thing, we're worse than an unbeliever. How are we showing the love of God? How are we obeying that if you love one another, they will know that you're my disciples? Godliness starts at home, in our physical homes and in our church home. And so the first paragraph, the first point is we need to provide real family care for widows in real need. Then we go on to to verse 10, and we see the second section, which I've said support their ministry in their physical family and then their spiritual family. Support their ministry in their physical family and then their spiritual family. And Paul here now shifts gears and and he goes on to talk about a list of widows or or enroll them on a a chart, a roster of widows. And there's lots of discussion in verse 9, let a widow be enrolled if, and we'll get to these qualifications in a moment. And there's, again, all kinds of opinions. Well, is this just restating the first paragraph and he just didn't think he said enough, so he's going to go back and say a little bit more details? But I would argue that this is actually talking about a different set of a different situation, a different set of widows, although they overlap, but a situation where widows were put on a list with a pledge that they will pledge to to serve in the church, to minister in certain capacities, and the church pledges to support them financially and with their needs. And so what we'll see here is a number of things in this section are talking about ministry rather than financial help and enabling someone for ministry and qualifications for ministry. And we, we see this even in the early church at the turn of the second century. Um, Tertullian was writing and he was saying that there was a registry of widows and the registry, they were committed to not be married, to prayer, to nursing the sick, to caring for the orphans, to visiting Christians in prison, to evangelizing pagan women, and teaching female converts in preparation for baptism. So by the by 130 years, 140 years later, there was already this official order of widows that would take care of some of the ministries of the church because they had the time to, they had the character to, and the church would reciprocate not with a salary, but just by supporting them as family. Because family always helps. Family always participates. Some of the church fathers, even at the turn of the first century into the second century, we see some of the same writings. And so this was probably an early form of that. Maybe not as organized as a hundred years later, but an early form of that of, okay, there's some widows that are able to commit to a, a deeper ministry in the church. Praise God! Isn't that exciting? And... So the church commits to a deeper support of them, and and it's a a wonderful arrangement. But Paul gives some instructions there, because that also has opportunity for abuse. 
that also is opportunity for maybe someone that isn't quite committed to ministry or isn't ready for ministry or hasn't proven themselves to say, I'd like the support. I'm going to commit to do this. Church commits to take care of me. Everything's good. And then they go off and do their own thing, which evidence was happening that some of the young widows were doing that. And so enrolled is probably the specific list of ministry, uh, of an ability of this arrangement for the, the widow to minister in a deeper way and the church to support in a deeper way. But Paul starts off by giving three qualifications for those in this expanded ministry and support. In verse 9 there, where we, where we left off, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. And so the first qualification is the widows must be 60 or over. And, and we can look at that and say, well, that's, that's pretty arbitrary. 60? Uh, and, and thinking of, well, has that changed today? We, we need to, to, to interpret this correctly. We need to understand why 60. What was going on in culture that 60 represented something? And 60 was the typical age of retirement or considered retirement for men and women. Think about it, age 60, if, if, if a mom has given birth to children up until her early 40s, what does 60 represent? Kids are out of the house. Kids, she, she's done with the responsibility, or, or you're never done with the responsibility of child rearing, but, but done with the in-house responsibility of child rearing. Moms and dads, you're never done being a mom and dad, are you? No. But it, it, it specifies a time where a woman would be retired, a woman probably would not get remarried after this time. They're, they're, culturally, the younger women were the ones that got married. And so she wouldn't be remarried. She had the time. She did not have the same family responsibilities anymore. That's very important to understand that when Paul is calling a woman into a deeper ministry in the church, it's after her family responsibilities are completed. It's huge, and that's why we see not before 60. I think about that, and I think about what so many of you, how you serve in the church that are retired or that are, are done with your first jobs because now you're entering your second job of the kingdom and second job of serving, and we have people volunteering here that have been retired. And What a wonderful way to say you are important and you are valued to say now that you have more time and the experience and the wisdom that goes with that, man, let's, let's serve the family. Let's help out. And it's a call for those that are retired and those that are older to not disengage, but to stay engaged. And for widows, that is particularly important. If you've lost family, this is family. Engage here. Engage. You know, maybe, maybe work with some kids because you know how to work with kids. You've done it. You've learned from mistakes. You've learned from successes. We need that. There is nothing like a grandma to love a kid. And it's a wonderful thing. In so many other areas, we see women teaching younger women in Titus 2. And, and we see women discipling women. We see women doing much of the visitation in the early church because they have the time. That is something that our, our ladies can do, can do as they retire. Second qualification there, so they must be 60 over. Second one is a one-woman man or faithful to her husband. 
says, having been the wife of one husband. Same wording, by the way, as the deacons and elders, where it says the husband of one wife. And we said that was a a one-woman man. This is a one-man woman. Did I say that wrong earlier? A one-man woman. It refers to faithfulness and proven character over time. And so it says those women that will be um, in deeper support and in deeper ministry, they need to have proven themselves by how they treated their husband by the priority they put on their husband, by the priority they put on their family. That's part of faithfulness. Priority on marriage. And then finally, you see in verse 10, she is to have a reputation for good works. A reputation for good works. And the ESV has a colon there, and correctly so, because the next five things are a definition of what those good works are. And there's a definite order here. We've already talked about marriage, and now the order continues if she has brought up children. And so the next step of proving her ministry heart is a heart for her family, a heart for her children. Whether it's her own children or if she wasn't able to have children, the orphans or other children. She has brought up children. If she has shown hospitality, And so we see marriage, children, hospitality is how you use your household, how you use your home. Is our home ready for hospitality? Are we ready to bring people in? And then it moves on to good works that are outside of the home. And so there's a a progression here, a priority here. Has washed the feet of the saints. And that speaks to a humble heart, to service to the saints a job that's usually reserved for servants or slaves that that a godly widow, a godly woman is not afraid to do because it's part of serving. She'll do anything to serve the body of Christ. A lowering of self. And again, our culture fights against that. Our culture says you can get little people to do that. You can get others to do that. You're too important to do that. And godliness says, no, I'm going to be the servant and I'm going to do that. And then finally, you go on, wash the feet of the saints, and then has cared for the afflicted. And again, these are good works now outside of the home. Has cared for the afflicted, those in distress, those under pressure. And then as Paul often does, a catch-all at the end. And has devoted herself to every good work, just in case he missed something. But these are the qualifications of a woman that is to be be given that deeper support and that deeper ministry. And wouldn't this, this person be qualified to care for orphans, to visit those in need, to attend to the details of church ministry with an attitude of proven servanthood? Because what these qualifications say is she has the time, she has her priorities right, she has proven character, and she has a ministry heart. And we can read this and say, well, that's great. That's for widows. But ladies, the requirements here are saying that these these women were already practicing those things. That this was how their life was lived. Their qualifications happened before they became widows. And this becomes a wonderful list for our ladies to aspire to. To say, this is what I can learn from those that have gone before. This is how God views a godly woman. And then in verse 11, Paul switches to the other side. 
And he talks to the younger widows. And and the point in your notes are younger widows are instructed to pursue the God-given significant task of taking care of family. Younger widows are instructed to pursue the God-given significant task of taking care of family. And we see in verse 11, but refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. And it is not saying that if you marry, you are not a Christian. Phew, right? (laughs) Many in here are married. And it is not saying you have to be married. But it's saying if you've made this pledge, if you've made this oath not to be married so you can serve Christ, if you break that oath, you are breaking a commitment to devote yourself to service and breaking breaking your commitment to Christ. And in that way, denying Christ. And so he says for the younger widows, it's okay to have a passion to marry. It's okay to want a family. In fact, pursue that rather than committing to not having that. Because in the heat of the moment, in a loss and despair, we'd say, oh, I'm never going to be married again, or I never want a family again. And he's telling the younger widows, no, no, don't arrange your life in such a way that that will never happen. Or that you will, do, that you will go against your pledges. Verse 12, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. And man, that sounds harsh, but keep in mind faith there, the, the Greek word for faith, pistuo, also means pledge or commitment. In fact, we have a whole number of writings where it's used in that way as pledge. And I think that's a better way to understand that verse is they'll go against their pledge. They'll go against their pledge of faithfulness to God. And Paul here is saying that's because they're younger and they have a different priority right now. Not that God isn't their priority, but that's fulfilled through family and children at this point. And so in verse 13, he talks about some dangers that, that young widows face if they, if they don't approach widowhood correctly or godly, if they, in a godly way, if they don't approach their place in life, their stage in life, in a godly way. And it says, besides that, in verse 13, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. And so he's saying, if a church puts them on a support, if a church eliminates the need for responsibility, just like any young person, man or woman, they often will take advantage of that. And so what was happening, it looks like, is the young widows were getting support from the church saying, hey, I don't have to work. I don't have to have a commitment to family. And they're just sort of flitting from house to house and gossip is happening and things are being said and busybody, which means putting yourself in someone else's business. And the church is being damaged. And Paul says that's because they're not fulfilling their priorities. They're not about what they should be about. So in verse 14, he says, So I would have, and that's an apostolic directive, So I would have the younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. And again, you see a progression there. Marry, bear children, so take care of your husband, take care of your family, take care of your house. And he says, if Young widows do that if that's their priority because that is their God-given ability and that is, they are skilled at that like no other. 
That is a priority. If they commit themselves to that, it protects them from those dangers. It protects them from being gossips and idlers and doing all kinds of other things with their time. That's challenging. That's challenging in a culture that says, if your commitment is to your marriage, if your commitment is to your kids, and if your commitment is to your family, you somehow are less significant. A culture that says, no, 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 household isn't, isn't really something you need to care about. Let's look outside of the house for approval. Let's look outside of the home and be more than what God has created you to be. And our culture is attempting to get our young women to trade in a million dollars for a hundred dollars. To trade in what is truly worthwhile, to trade in what is incredibly significant, for the lie that somehow satisfaction can be found outside of the home, which it isn't. We're satisfied where we choose to be satisfied. And I pray for our young women, widows or not, because you are fighting a culture that is pounding you with that message every day, every hour. And I challenge you and I encourage you and I stand with you to stand strong. And to say, my commitment to my family, my commitment to my home has eternal value and has consequences that you know nothing about, that this world knows nothing about. So Paul goes on to say, don't give Satan opportunity. At the end of 14, marry, bear children, manage households. He's talking about priorities here. And give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. Because Satan would love to distract homes from what homes are to be about. To distract wives, husbands from their task, but in this passage, wives from their responsibility. I have, I have sat through, through situations where I've watched marriages fall apart because these responsibilities, these priorities weren't followed. Where I have seen People buy into the lie that this world says that there is, there is somehow a greater significance outside of the home and then the home falls apart and there's significance nowhere because Satan has destroyed credibility. Take this seriously. God's Word is God's Word. And so moms that have kids at home, I know that it's tiring I know that there are days that you just are at your end because the patience has gone as far as it can go. I want you to know that you are doing divine work. Divine work of raising those young men and women for Christ. You are doing eternal work that has value. As you clean your house, as you take care of your household, you are doing eternal work that is an investment that pays off like no other investment. And it's interesting because Paul here is, is not saying that young women shouldn't be in ministry outside of the house. He's saying that there's a priority. And so in a sense, he's saying, test the younger widows. How are they committed to their marriage? How are they committed to their kids? How are they committed to their household? If they pass those tests, then further ministry can happen. But those are the priorities. 
That's hard. I don't know how many of us would like someone to come in and see how clean our house is for whether we can be in ministry. But it's very telling. It's very telling for where our heart is. And that's where Paul is going with the young widows to say, let's practice godliness in the lab of the home. In the lab of the home. I love a story that um, is told of a Scottish preacher, Ian McLaren, of a woman in his church. And as they were talking, she began to wipe her eyes from the corner of her apron. And so he said, what's disturbing you? She said, oh, sometimes I feel I have done so little. And when I think about it, it makes my heart heavy because really I've done so little for Jesus. When I was a wee girl, you know, it's Scotland. When I was a wee girl, the Lord spoke to my heart and I surrendered to him. And I wanted to live for him oh so much, but I feel I haven't done anything. What have you done with your life? The pastor asked. Oh, nothing, she said. Just nothing. I've washed dishes, cooked three meals a day, taken care of my children, mopped the floor, mended the clothes. You know, everything a mother does, that's all I've done. McLaren sat back in his chair and asked, where are your boys? Oh, she spoke. You know I named them all for the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know them all and you know where Mark is. You ordained him. He went to China. He's learned the language and now he is able to minister to the people in the name of the Lord. Where's Luke? McLaren said. Well, you know well enough where he is. You sent him out. I had a letter from him the other day. He's in Africa. He says a revival has broken out at his mission station. And Matthew, the pastor asked. Well, he's with his brother in China and they're working together. And John, who's 19, came to me last night to say God has laid Africa on his heart. He said, I'm going to Africa, but don't worry about it, mother, because the Lord has shown me that I am to stay with you until you go home to glory. And then I'll go. He's honoring his mother. Until then, I have to take care of you. McLaren looked at the elderly saint and said, your life has been wasted, you say? Yes, it has been wasted. You've been cooking and mopping and washing. But I would love to see the reward you will have when you are called home. That's what a priority on home and family can do. How many souls were saved because of that ministry? Down at the end of your notes, I ask two questions. Church, how will you honor widows? How will you, how will I, how will we honor our widows? And I throw out some ideas there. We can pray for them. Send them a note, which by the way, I have notes in the back on the table, encouragement notes, and a basket that if you want to fill one out and put it in the basket, we'll make sure they get them. Send them a note. Give a gift. Invite them over or out to to a meal. Call them. Ask what they need. Ladies, a great way to minister to our widows is to ask them to disciple you. Men, it would be, I can see a new ministry happening here of an assistance team led by some of the men in our church that are willing to take care of car repairs and house repairs and and all kinds of things. A team of men that are on call. Some of you may need to message myself or Pastor Andrew and say, "Who, who are our widows? Because that's the first step to being able to honor them. I know we have a ministry, a visitation ministry starting up, and Amanda's been working on that, and I know she would love help and, and more, more bodies to go visit and to send cards and to send letters. But the, the, the application in this passage is we are to honor them. That's not the option. How we honor them is, is up to us. 
Honoring them is not the option. And then to our widows, to our widowers, to our retired, my question for you is, how will you use your circumstances, good or bad, how will you use your circumstances to honor God, to bring glory to God? Those are the two questions that we're left with in this passage, and they're practical questions we can act on today. I pray that there's not one widow that gets out that door today without a hug and a smile and someone saying they love them. So some of you might have to get to the door first. Let's love on them. Let's care for them. Let's honor them. Because we have family. And families take care of their own. And so we come to communion today, and we want to end our our service with communion. And this is a reminder to me that we are a family. Because through the blood of Jesus Christ, He adopted us as, as sons and daughters of the King, made us brothers and sisters in Christ. And as we share communion, we share it together in the context of family. And so if you take communion today, this is also a commitment to be part of God's family. This is a commitment to to honor Jesus and to remember Jesus by taking care of his family, by the moms we have in our church. So we want to, to remember Christ, remember his sacrifice that he brought us into his kingdom, but remember with an eye to application today. How can I show that I remember Christ with my actions this week? Let's pray together. Dear Lord God, I thank you for the widows in our church and the widowers. I thank you for the wisdom they have, for the love that they have, Lord. I pray for them because their hearts break so many times. And the pain is there from loss. But I pray that we as a church will step up and help fill that loss. Fill them with so much love that they don't know what to do with themselves. And by so doing, we'll be a testimony to the world around us. Lord, thank you for your work on the cross. That we can even be called sons and daughters of a king. Because you died and your blood paid the price for our sins. Lord, we remember you by following your word. In Jesus' name.